we've seen that if the gospel is to spread, there must be a passing on of certain truth. There must be a verbal communication of the gospel message, whether it's from a pulpit, at the school gates, over the garden fence, wherever. But then it's also more than passing on the truth. It's to be declared with authority because it is the truth and it must be impressed upon people that the gospel requires a response. This has to be more than the way we might talk to people about a fascinating fact that you've come across. Very interesting but of no actual relevance to the person you're talking about. That's not gospel preaching. That every man, woman, boy and girl is in desperate need of salvation. That every man, woman, boy and girl is in desperate need of that which can only be found in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That God commands that all people everywhere repent. That it's not a polite request. It's not a suggestion that it might be a good idea. Repentance is commanded by God, which is why it's such a serious issue to refuse and remain in unbelief. We remembered last week the necessity of the vital intervention of the Holy Spirit in the life of a sinner, if anyone is to be saved. But that does not mean that those who are not saved are just like some unfortunate victim of circumstance who doesn't deserve God's judgment. Most men and women who hear the gospel willfully and knowingly reject both the message and the invitation. And often with sneers or with ridicule or disgust, or simply with a gloating disdain for such old-fashioned, out-of-date views and ideas. And what about those who never actually get to hear the message of the gospel? Well, for the most part, they actually live their lives completely happy not to have God involved in any way, which in itself is a great sin. And convinced in their own form of self-righteousness. So the work of God by his spirit is absolutely vital. There can be no conversion without him. And serious, earnest prayer must undergird all gospel endeavour. Read any of the accounts of those men and women who God has used in marvellous ways in winning people to Christ, you'll always discover men and women of prayer, often supported by men and women of prayer. If your life has truly been transformed by God's renewing power and grace, if this has happened to you, something else comes into play in making Christ known. There should be something markedly different about you, which is a witness in itself. 
and which reinforces the gospel message that you confess. One of the ways that the Bible talks about this is of us walking worthy. Walking worthy. And I want to use that as our first springboard into living a life that commends Christ to people. Walking worthy. We'll consider a few scriptures. Here's the first in the first verse of Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner of the Lord, Paul writes, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And in those simple words there, he reminds us that becoming a Christian isn't a decision that you've taken for and on behalf of yourself. It isn't your own little program that you've come up with. It isn't how you happen to have chosen to style your life. Many other things, perhaps in your life, are just that. Decisions that you've taken for yourself and on behalf of yourself. Your own little programs and schemes and ways of doing things. Uh, Frankly, one danger for Christian believers is that other choices that we make, other things that we choose to pursue, they can become far too dominant in our lives. Not that those things necessarily are sinful, not that those things necessarily are illegitimate in the life of a Christian, but just far too dominant. They take up too much of our time and our energy and our resources and even our conversation. We're often, t- often found talking about this or that, but never about Christ, never about the gospel, never about the sermon, whether you thought it was good or bad. You have been called Christian. You've been called to Christ by God. During the two world wars, men of a certain age received call-up papers. You're being enlisted into the armed forces. And from that moment, everything changes. Especially for your mum. Oh, the mothers that wept when those call-up papers came through the door for their sons. They were under orders. They were out of civilian life and into the regime of the military. They had a new identity. They were placed under a new authority, which they had to obey. It's not so dissimilar for you. You've been called up by Christ, by the Holy Spirit. You haven't just been saved from your sins, as glorious and wonderful as that is. God has called you out. He's called you to himself. You've been called out of the world's regime And into the regime of the kingdom and kingship of God in Christ. There's a certain way you now must walk because you've been called. There's a certain type of life that now you must live because you've been called. You must walk worthy of your calling. 
And Paul describes this in various ways. I'll give you a few examples. Philippians chapter 1, at verse 27, he says, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. This life that we're to live must reflect what the gospel claims to do for a sinner. Whatever our claims are, your life and mine should reflect it. And the same characteristics and principles ought to be seen generally in all of us. Now, yes, we continue to have our own individuality in a sense. We have our own personalities still. But there should be general things that are true in each one of us as we seek to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's something you must now strive for. You give yourself to this. You put yourself to it completely. And so in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2, from verse 11, we find Paul writing this to the Thessalonian church. You know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you walk worthy of God. Well, there's a text for one sermon. Walk worthy of God. Who, me? Worthy of God? Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk worthy of the one who's called you. Your life is to be a living demonstration and reflection of life in the kingdom and glory of God. Wow. Should not people notice this? Shouldn't this make us stand out? Shouldn't this make us seem rather unique in the road where you live, in the place where you study or work or, or do your shopping or whatever? Shouldn't this make a difference? The Colossian church. See how broadly Paul mentions this. All these different churches that he's writing to. This theme being repeated. Colossians chapter 1 verse 9, for this reason also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Now you see, when themes like this keep getting repeated in the Bible, it's important. Walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. See, it's a life of obedience to what God requires of you so that above all other concerns, your life pleases him. Will you have other concerns? Yes. Will many of those concerns be legitimate? Yes. But above, above all of those, pleasing God is your first concern. And for this, you need knowledge, according to that text. You need understanding and you need strength. And the knowledge and the understanding and the strength that you need, only God can supply. And he does. Note the words of verse 11 there in Colossians 1. 
according to God's glorious power. According to God's glorious power. Now hold on to that thought for a minute. This walking worthy, you can't do on your own. It's according to God's glorious power. Hold on to that thought for a second. And we'll read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. At verse 11. Therefore we also pray also always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. He's written to them twice and mentions it in both letters. This is significant. And fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these scriptures are so very helpful, aren't they? We've had in Colossians 1.11, according to his glorious power. And in 2 Thessalonians, that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what this emphasises for us, as other verses have, is that whilst we ourselves have this responsibility placed upon us, walk worthy, whilst we have this responsibility placed upon us for how we live as Christians, it is nevertheless God who is producing it in us. Now, some find this hard to reconcile. On the one hand, the Bible says, you do it. And on the other hand, the Bible says, it's God doing it. And some people struggle. And they say, well, surely, come on, which is it? Either it's me or it's God. But the answer is, it's both. It's both. It's you striving to walk worthy. But... You can only do it because God strengthens you and enables you by his grace. And he does. That you may do it. God, through his apostle, exhorts you to walk worthy. And how unbelievably crushing that exhortation would be, except that this verse, and others like it, holds out another truth that runs alongside it like the two rails of a railway track. God is at work within you, producing this in you by his good pleasure, because of his goodness, working out your faith in you by his power and according to his grace. That in this Christ, that in this Christ may be glorified in you, and here it is, the Christ who we proclaim in the gospel, that he might be seen in us and that he might be glorified through us and by us. That the evidence of what the gospel does can be seen in the life of every Christian. Because it's God who's doing that. It's God who's producing that in you. And so he is glorified and Christ is glorified. That is the Christian life, making Christ known. Only God could be doing that. 
So we ask a question, well, how should this look? What does it actually look like in the life of a Christian? Well, a great place to begin is Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus teaches at a very simple level. And that's just as well, because most of us need simple teaching, because we're simple people. And it really is simple. Those famous words in Matthew 5, verse 13, salt, light, that they might see your good works and glorify God. In the midst of a world that's blighted by wickedness and unrighteousness of every conceivable description, there are to be men and women and boys and girls in homes, in neighbourhoods, in schools, in universities, in places of work, in sports clubs, as customers in shops, as citizens in countries who stand out as different. Salt speaks of purity and of seasoning. Salt speaks of a remedy against decay. Salt speaks of that which infuses a good savour. That's to be you and me in Christ. Light speaks of goodness and righteousness and holiness amidst the blackness of sin. Lives of honesty, truthfulness, integrity, lives of love and compassion and kindness, lives of good works which honour the Saviour and recommend him to them. And then later on in Matthew 5, from verse 38, we have these other quite well-known verses. The lives of believers are actually those described in the opening 12 verses of Matthew 5, in what we know as the Beatitudes, which speak of humility, not pride, which speak of meekness, not aggression. How aggressive the world is today. Meekness, quiet, gentle strength. Merciful, not vindictive and vengeful. Pure in heart, not ready to do whatever it takes to get my own way. Peacemakers, not those who provoke and stir up trouble. And then at the end of the chapter, we have these examples of men and women who will actually confound people by not reacting and responding the way the world has come to expect. If you walked down Church Street or Lord Street in Liverpool on a Saturday night and punched someone, guess what you'd get back? You'd be like the man in the story of the Good Samaritan. They'd leave you for dead in the street, wouldn't they? Christians don't react or respond like that, do they? Because we're marching to a different drum. We don't react and respond to provocation the way the world does. 
the sinful world, by and large, works a certain way. Shows itself in different degrees in people, of course. But by and large, it, we have that saying, don't we? The way people tick. In the world, people all tick the same. But the Christian doesn't. The Christian now walks to a different beat. Don't you? And this gospel work, this proclamation of Christ, this simply naming Christ as your own Saviour and Lord, it will indeed stir up enemies and persecution. Jesus talks about that a lot in this chapter, Matthew 5. But even there, what does Jesus direct us to do? He directs us to find fresh opportunity to be salt and light and to respond in a way that the world simply is not expecting and has not grown used to. So we need to be very different. And in confronting the world with the difference that Christ makes in the heart of a Christian, we can make known the gospel. And thirdly and finally, let's not underestimate how important our lives can be in gospel witness. Just how important our lives can be. Now we, re we read earlier from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I've already requoted some of those verses. But as I said earlier, in that passage, Paul makes reference to the kind of life that he lived amongst them. The kind of life he lived amongst them, some of them before they were saved... And then as young Christians, young believers in a newly established church. And Paul talks about his life and how it reinforced his gospel preaching. So we have in verse 3, there was, there was never any hint of deceit in Paul. No one ever imagined for a second that here's a guy who's trying to pull the wool over our eyes. Because his life was see through with integrity look at verse 7 I was gentle with you and he uses the imagery of a nursing mother cherishing her children what a, what a gorgeous picture that is a mother with a young child that's how I was with you says Paul verse 8 affectionately longing for you a heart full of affection for those who were lost and for those who've newly come into the church. We, we not only imparted the gospel to you, we not only gave you the gospel, we actually gave you our very lives. Verse 9, remember how we laboured and toiled. Remember how diligent we were. How hard-working we were. How consistent we were. How unwavering we were. All of these things in Paul's life, reinforcing the message that he's preaching. He begins with preaching. Don't forget that. At the beginning of the chapter, he talks about his preaching. But it's being reinforced by his life amongst them. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves amongst you. 
Christians behave themselves. <laughs> Sounds obvious, doesn't it? But do we always the way we should? We behave ourselves. In all the different contexts of our lives, in our home circumstance, if you're a child under the authority of your parents, behave yourself. If you're a Christian, if you're a parent with unsaved children, behave yourself as a Christian parent should for the sake of your children's souls. In your place of work, where perhaps it's not so common for people to behave themselves, you do it. Yeah, it might be hard. Yeah, you get some stick for it, I know. But Christians behave themselves. And so the examples could go on and on and on and on. Behave yourselves. And Paul is able to point back to those things which were part of the package, if you like, of making Christ known. And then finally, those great words of one of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. And he's talking there to Christian women. And he says a number of things there, but we just want to focus on the very first thing that he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, because Peter really feels for those women who are Christian believers, but their husbands are not. And he says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Well, of course, that, that's general instruction for, for wives to their husbands. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now, surely this principle has much wider implications and much wider application than simply that one. But it certainly applies there. Here are women with unbelieving husbands who have heard the gospel, but they refuse to believe. Note what he says. Some do not obey the word. So they've heard it, but no, it's not for me, thank you. What do you do when you're rubbing shoulders with people like that every day? Well, what you don't do is get on their nerves by trying to preach to them again and again and again and again. But you can win them by the undeniable and overwhelming evidence of the goodness of God's grace in your life. That's what's being taught here. Now, do note carefully, these are people who have already heard the word. This isn't replacing preaching. Do take that in co the right context. It's not, do it, it's not saying do this instead of preaching. But once you've preached... And particularly for those amongst whom you live and rub shoulders with day after day after day. That good testimony of your life can draw them. And that word that they've heard, they look at your life and they can't get that word out of their mind. And they look at your life and they keep hearing that word. And they look at your life some more and that word keeps coming back. And they keep seeing the reality of it in you. And the Holy Spirit does his work. And they are called. That's what Peter's talking about here. 
What a good testimony can do is convince them of the fidelity and the goodness of the message they previously heard. All of these things can be aptly concluded by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, Do all things without complaining and disputing. There's enough of that in the world. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or laboured in vain shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life making Christ known with a life of integrity